Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, she's represented Oakland in the House of Representatives for 22 years. Barbara Lee of Oakland will join us to talk about tonight's debate and more. And I'm sure we'll chat with her about fellow Oaklander Kamala Harris as well. But first... Oh, boy, it is the most expensive ballot measure in campaign uh, state history in terms of campaigns. More than $200 million has been spent on Proposition 22, mostly in favor of it. The measure is pitting gig economy companies like Uber and Lyft against organized labor and others. And joining us at the top of the show today, someone who is covering Silicon Valley and labor issues, KQED's Sam Harnett. He's on top of the Prop 22 story. Sam, welcome to The Breakdown. Thanks for having me on. So let's talk about Prop 22 uh, put on the ballot by three tech companies, basically would exempt them from a new state law, AB5, that would uh, require their drivers and delivery people to be classified as employees rather than independent contractors, which they claim they are. So why do they feel so strongly about this? I mean, for, for the gig companies, this is existential. I mean, they've built their business model on classifying their workers as contractors, which means they don't have to pay for basic employee protections like workers' compensation and unemployment or overtime if, if a worker uh, works more than 40 hours. So this this is essential for them. And they've been fighting this since, since day one. I mean, since Uber and Lyft hit the road in 2012, they have been fighting aggressively to continue classifying workers as contractors. Now, over the years, that's gotten harder. Um, you know, the California Supreme Court uh, in 2018 issued the Dynamex decision, which made it harder for, for companies to classify workers as contractors. The uh, state legislature then passed AB5, which was directly targeting gig companies. And then uh, early, earlier this year, the, the attorney general sued them uh, uh, over this issue. So, yeah, they're fighting tooth and nail. That's why they've spent almost $200 million uh, uh, on this campaign. So, Sam, I mean, you say this is their business model. My understanding, though, is that these companies aren't actually profitable anyway. Can you talk about what it would mean for workers and the companies if this fails? Like how how what would be the real life impact? Right. I mean, you point out, <laughs> make a very good point, Marisa, like they're not making money anyway. Uh, and if they have to make their workers employees, uh, they're going to have even less revenue. That being said, these companies have billions of dollars. Um, part of their business model all along has been to undercut uh, taxis and to be competitive with uh, public transportation. So they've kept their rates artificially low. Um, now, if workers had to become employees, uh, certainly the companies would have to um, uh, do some rejiggering internally. Um, they might have to do things like um, 
the most casual workers on the platform. There might be more requirements, um, so it might be a little more difficult for them. But the bulk of, of the work on these apps is done by people uh, doing 20, 30, 40 hours of work. And these workers then would get those benefits, which, you know, maybe the companies would have to raise their prices a little bit. Um, you know, maybe they would have to narrow their focus and, and target certain markets where they could make money. Um, but, you know, Uber and Lyft, especially, they've said they'd leave California uh, temporarily over this. But you can imagine they'd figure out some way some way to stick around. Yeah, I mean, it's such a huge market. Uh, Sam, I know you've spent a lot of time not just recently, but over the years, talking with drivers. Uh, and, you know, there's the, the, the fundamental argument of the current system uh, provides independence and flexibility. On the other hand, Prop 22, if it goes down, would uh, give benefits and certain protections to workers. What do drivers, what is your sense of what drivers think and say about this? You know, it's funny. There's a lot of talk about this. Uh, and if you listen to the gig companies, they say, listen, in all these surveys, drivers are saying they want to be independent contractors. And that's technically true. On surveys, drivers do often say they want to be contractors or they want to be uh, have flexibility and have freedom. Um, but really, when you talk to drivers, what they want, it's a little more nuanced than that. They want autonomy and flexibility and independence, but they also want to make enough money so that they can pay for health insurance so that they can um, have a replacement for workers' compensation so that they can actually choose to, to drive when they want to drive as opposed to feeling like they have to drive 40, 50, 60 hours just to pay the bills. And back in the beginning of Uber and Lyft, the companies were using their vast amounts of venture capital to subsidize the wages of drivers so they were higher. But over the last eight years, uh, rates for Uber, Lyft, and all the other gig companies have gone down and down and down for drivers. So now drivers are saying, listen, you know, we want to be contractors, but we're not getting nearly enough money. And uh, because of how the apps work, you know, the apps incentivize drivers to drive at a certain time. Apps will deactivate drivers uh, if they don't... Um, you know, if, if they are uh, not rated highly by passengers, they're saying we're, we're being treated like employees. We're not getting any of the benefits uh, that you or protections you get as an employee. And we're not making enough to, to live as a contractor. So to sum it all up, what they really want is they want to be independent contractors, but they want to have enough money and protections uh, so, so that they can really be their own bosses. And I mean, the, 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 the actual ballot measure says they'll get 120% of minimum wage, but only for the times they're actually driving, right? Which raises right. a lot of questions. Right. We should actually talk about that just for a second, because I think that's really, um, you know, what Proposition 22 isn't, it doesn't um, allow them to continue being independent contractors. It sort of creates a new category of worker a gig contract worker. And it would basically enshrine into law this category, which uh, for now it would be restricted to uh, uh, app-based transportation and delivery services. But you can see there are a lot of other companies that if this passes, you can you could bet they're going to look at this and say, okay, we should develop an app uh, to get to this new category of worker because it's a lot cheaper than employee status. And Marisa, as you pointed out, a lot of those benefits, we, we, we could talk more specifically, but a lot of those benefits are not exactly what they seem. Right. And I mean, there's also like questions about during the pandemic about you know workers comp and unemployment. But before we get I, we only have a few minutes left with you. I want to ask you about the story you broke this week around what the Uber and Lyft in specific. And I think a couple other companies have been doing almost to pressure drivers into supporting this. Tell us about the right. the text message you got and <laughs> what you found out. 
Right. So uh, I got a message from a driver. It sent me a screenshot from the Uber app. And the screenshot was of a pop-up that that driver and all and other drivers are getting. And the pop-up uh, says, um, you know, Proposition 22 is progress. And then it has some promotional language about Prop 22. And then a driver has the option to click yes on Prop 22 or OK. Those are the only two options to get rid of this pop-up. Now, this driver wants to be an employee. He actually had gotten into an accident years ago, uh, had to take eight months off driving and wasn't covered by workers' comp. And that's when he decided, hey, I, I need employee protections. But now he's getting this app, this pop-up where he has to say either yes, I'm Prop 22 or okay. And he was feeling like I'm being compelled uh, politically to, to say that I support something I don't support. Um, at the same time, riders in, Uber, in Ubers were getting pop-ups saying, your drivers support Prop 22. You should talk to them about it. So, so Uber, Lyft, uh, and these companies are using their apps aggressively to message directly to both the workers and the consumers. And it's something unprecedented in California politics that these companies have so much connection. Um, you know, and the last thing I'll say about that, you know, uh, is there's a lawsuit right now. Uh, Uber drivers today, uh, they're suing the company, saying that they're being coerced politically on the job. Sam, uh, we're going to let you go in a second, but one last question. You know, you've done a lot of reporting uh, on, you know, how workers have generally, in other industries as well, seen their power and leverage diminish over the past few years, unions weakening also. How do you see this issue, this classification of gig workers fitting in with that larger trend? Oh, I think it's huge. I mean, I think that uh, the gig worker category is what uh, American corporations wanted for a long time for workers. I mean, it keeps them at an arm's length. The companies are not responsible. Um, and it's done under the guise of entrepreneurship and being your own boss, which sounds really great. I mean, who doesn't want that? Um, but when you're not making enough money to cover your basic needs, and when the apps actually do have some, um, they do have these sort of techniques to make you do what the app wants you to do, uh, you're, you're really not in a great position. So I think it's a, it's, yeah, it's a, a big continuation of that. Um, and I think with Prop 22, uh, what happens with this prop is, is going to be a huge decider in how this plays out. All right. That's KQED Sam Harnett, who covers Silicon Valley and labor issues. Sam, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on. All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be joined by a woman who will be keeping a close eye on tonight's presidential debate, Oakland Congresswoman Barbara Lee. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 
And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Maurice Lagos, and we're now thrilled to have back with us again the woman who has represented Oakland in the House of Representatives since 1998, Barbara Lee. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. Good to have you. Thank you so much. Really happy to be with you. Well, I want to ask you about Prop 22, which we were just chatting with Sam Harnett about. Uh, you know, the NAACP in California is supporting Prop 22, and it's also taken positions on some other ballot measures. It's opposing rent control, it's opposing bail reform, it's opposing Prop 15, which would generate a lot of money for schools. And, you know, some people feel like that doesn't really represent the best interests of people of color. And I, I'm just wondering, what do you think of that? Well, uh, the NAACP has their process upon which they make these decisions, but I just have to tell you, I for example, I'm totally opposed to, to Proposition 22 uh, because I think that uh, drivers need to be treated fairly and they're not treated fairly. Uh, and uh, I think it's what, Prop 25 to end cash bail? Uh, yep. we, mm -hmm. We've got to do that because it uh, disproportionately affects low-income people, people who can't afford that. And so that is a, a measure that will begin to help um uh, address the in inequities in uh, this whole uh, criminal, supposedly justice system, and so again, every my, I have an advisory committee. My advisory committee uh, conducts due diligence. Uh, we talk, we discuss the issues, how uh, what we should do in terms of letting the public know what we think about those issues. Every organization does that. Uh, some I agree with, others I don't. Well, I mean, I just want to ask you if you think that having the head of, you know, an organization who's taking, I mean, she's, her consulting firm has taken in over a million dollars from, you know, the same side of campaigns that then the NAACP weighed in on, does that diminish the importance of their endorsement? Um, and Or should it in the eyes of voters? Look, I'm sure that the process, whatever the process the NAACP conducts for a position was... Uh, adhere to and I'm not sure what that process is so I, I can't mm. say whether or not uh, the process was uh, subverted I, I have no idea and I don't think it's my job to really uh, <laughs> comment on it I can comment on what positions I've taken and why Fair and, enough. Uh, Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Well, let's let's move on to the presidential stuff. Uh, yeah, Joe Biden, of course, has been consistently ahead in national polls. He's even ahead in some swing states, uh, although by smaller margins. And he's even competitive in states like Iowa, Georgia, Ohio, your native Texas, even. But you know, a lot of Democrats are very nervous. I think they still have PTSD from 2016. What about you? Listen, I know. Uh, <laughs> In terms of what uh, the polls are saying, I'm happy to see what the polls are saying, but in many ways, we know that there are other issues that we need to look at. And so, yes, the polls uh, may say one thing, but I want to make sure that all of our votes are, are cast and counted. And so we can't take anything for granted, nor can we believe all of the polls. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, those polls are uh, conducted in, in a variety of, of ways. Their methodologies are different. They sometimes poll one population of people versus another. And so, you know, that's one, one factor. That's one measurement. But the, the measurement is how many people we contact, how many people uh, ask for their mail-in ballot, how many people vote, how many people show up to vote, how many people vote early and to make sure that uh, elect the um, suppression of our votes 
uh, are not allowed to happen. And that, I think, is extremely important. So I'm not taking anything for granted. I don't know many Democrats who are taking anything <laughs> for granted. I know the Biden-Harris campaign is not. And I think that's why you see long lines uh, in communities that uh, really recognize that uh, their vote must be cast, their voice must be heard, and they must be counted. Well, Congresswoman, I know you just were on the ground in Arizona, one of these key swing states that, you know, 10 years ago would have been an easy red win and is really changing. What's your sense on the ground? I mean, what are you hearing, particularly from voters of color, younger voters who really are those key demographics that the Biden-Harris campaign is, is really targeting? Sure. You know, my late mother lived in Arizona for years and uh, I know Arizona fairly well. And uh, (laughs) there's no way I would have thought that we would be this close to winning in Arizona. But I have to tell you, the uh, fact that we have so many now uh, people of color who have moved to Arizona, uh, it's my understanding that the census will show that probably now Arizona has close to 10 percent African-American population scattered, but there. And so I think that uh, we have a very good shot in in Arizona. Uh, Young people are excited. Uh, I visited uh, uh, an African-American church, met with uh, members of the clergy, uh, visited the headquarters. It's a phenomenal uh, team that's working there. They have a good ground campaign, especially in the uh, era of COVID, the health protocols, I have to say, are very, very tight uh, in terms of the social and physical distancing, the wearing of masks, the not uh, concentrating uh, in large crowds. I think, you know, generally, uh, especially in Arizona, we try to build large crowds. Well, in this instance, it's keeping people from coming to build large crowds at the campaign headquarters. I think we can only have about <laughs> 30 or 35. So, <laughs> so the enthusiasm is there. More people want to engage in um, the ground effort. And so we're doing work virtually. We're doing uh, lit- literature drops, phone banking, texting. Uh, and I have a lot of hope. Uh, my mother, for example, lived in a part of uh, right in Sun City, right outside of the um, major, in, outside of uh, the urban area of uh, Arizona. Sun City... Um, looks like it's blue now (laughs) and it wasn't before but these are seniors who live there who know that uh, donald trump due to his lack of leadership is responsible for now what do we have over two hundred twenty-five thousand deaths come on so i think people in arizona recognize that uh, we've got to crush this pandemic that seniors are hitting are being hit in in disproportionate numbers and that uh, there's a huge stake in this election because it is a matter of life and death. And I think Arizonans really recognize that. I want to ask you uh, about uh, the uh, kind of the role you played four years ago when Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton supporters were really at odds with each other. You played the, the peacemaker. You helped close the gap. And uh, with mixed results, I think I would say, not not just because of you, but just because of the animosity there. But how different is the Democratic coalition this time around? The Democratic coalition uh, this time around is is very uh, solid. Uh, and I think that's a real testament to um, Vice President Biden and to Senator Bernie Sanders and to Senator Harris. Because as you remember, I endorsed Senator Harris early. And uh, then uh, after uh, Bernie uh, dropped out, I endorsed uh, Senator Biden. And what they did was put together task forces, uh, Senator, uh, Vice President Biden, excuse me, and Senator um, Sanders. And these task forces 
came together on the policy agenda. Remember, this is about public policy and about changing the direction of this country. And they presented uh, a consensus recommendation from each task force, healthcare, climate change, jobs, uh, all of the uh, issues that uh, are incorporated in the Democratic Party platform. Now, I was on the drafting committee. There were about, I think, 15 of us, 15 or 16 of us that drafted this Democratic Party platform. I was on it also in 2016 and in 2012. And I can say very clearly that this is the most progressive and the most inclusive platform that I have ever seen. And no one ever reads the Democratic platform, <laughs> but <laughs> I would hope I would hope that <laughs> people read it because this and I'm going to insist that this be a roadmap that uh, the White House, uh, the president and vice president look at criminal justice reform. It's a very, very uh, transformational plank in our platform. And so I think that uh, this time around, just looking at the platform in itself, it was progressive in 2016 in terms of making sure that some of the issues that uh, we wanted in were, were incorporated. But this time, I think Senator Sanders uh, has made a major, major impact. And I helped negotiate uh, those provisions of this platform this time also. And so I think that that in itself brought more consensus, uh, more so than in 2016. But we still have people who are still uh, not quite decided. <laughs> and those, but most people are decided. But I'm doing everything I can do to make sure that our young people, especially our young people of color, uh, understand that this is about their future and that they they must vote. Uh, and their vote and their voice uh, definitely is counted. And the Democratic Party platform shows that and demonstrates that in, in words and will be uh, activated in the White House in deeds. Yeah, I want to talk about that because, I mean, one thing we've seen during this general campaign is a real, I think, you know, Biden holding at arm's length some of the, the issues that Bernie Sanders did champion, the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, you know, really talking about a public option. But quite frankly, being a little bit more moderate on these things. And I'm wondering if you obviously there's a political reason behind that. But does do you ever get concerned that the Democrats are going too far and maybe maybe not be exciting those younger voters you're talking about who largely did support these more as you know, Trump would say radical ideas? Well, I think that uh, <laughs> these are ideas that are mainstream ideas, really, if you talk about uh, for instance, a minimum wage of $15 an hour. Come on, we need a living wage. But the Sanders and, and uh, Biden people agreed to uh, the $15. When you look at uh, the position in the Democratic Party platform on uh, climate, it may not say Green New Deal, but if you read it, it's Green New Deal. In many ways, it, it incorporates many of the provisions of a Green New Deal. Of course, I support Medicare for all, but that is not in the platform, but we did, we were able to get an agreement to reduce the age uh, for Medicare and we're gonna continue to work. So nothing's perfect. It's not a hundred percent. And as a progressive, trust me, on day one, <laughs> on day one, I'm gonna be pushing the envelope so that we can make sure that uh, those big ideas and that those progressive ideas of racial justice, racial equity, criminal justice reform, uh, economic growth, green, new, uh, new green jobs, you know, all of the issues that 
the California Democratic Party platform, which I'm really proud of because I was on that platform committee also, that we push the envelope because I think uh, with Vice President Biden and Senator Harris and Senator Sanders, uh, Senator Warren, myself and others, I think we have a seat at the table. And I think that's the right way to to conduct uh, business and and to conduct our government in a in a democracy, because not everyone is going to get 100 percent. You're listening to Political Breakdown. If you're just joining us, I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and we're talking with East Bay Congresswoman Barbara Lee. And of course, everything you just said, Congresswoman, or a lot of it anyway, depends on Democrats taking over the Senate. We'll see if that happens. But, you know, some polls have shown that Trump is doing a little better than uh, Hillary Clinton did with black and Latinx voters, which, you know, would seem to be counterintuitive. What do you make of that? You know, that's hard to understand. First of all, this 45th (laughs) president in the White House, (laughs) Donald Trump, has done just the opposite for uh, the African-American and and Latinx community. When you look, for example, at uh, taking children, snatching children from their families at the borders, right now they're 500 and some children. We don't know where their parents are because of Donald Trump, because of what he has done. When you look at the African-American community and what uh, he has done in terms of, and I'm going to just give you a couple of examples. I serve on the Appropriations Committee, uh, coming forth with uh, zero money for addressing uh, health disparities in the minority communities, rolling back civil rights uh, offices within the Department of Education and other agencies, uh, issuing executive um, orders that uh, stop racial inclusion and diversity and uh, unconscious bias programs, uh, taking the side of white supremacists. You know, it's it's amazing that uh, anyone can condone these policies in this country, uh, especially uh, African-Americans and Latinx communities. So I don't believe that, um, that, that people of color are gonna vote for Donald Trump if they look at their record and if they look at what he has not just not done, but how he has reversed the clock, housing discrimination. They've dismantled policies that address housing discrimination. When you look at what he's doing with healthcare, healthcare is a big issue for African-Americans and for the Asian Pacific uh, and, excuse me, Asian American and Pacific Islander community and for the Latinx community. Here, this man has, has begun to dismantle the Affordable Care Act and has filed a lawsuit that's going to be before the Supreme Court November 10th to take away health care from millions of people. Guess who that health care will be taken away from the most vulnerable, from women, mm-hmm. from black and brown people. And so if if, if African-Americans and Latinx community uh, look at his record and yeah. see what he not only has not done, but is doing <laughs> to set us back and to take away our lives in a lot of ways in terms of health care, then uh, that to me is enough to say no way. All right. Uh, we can't. Congresswoman, I want to ask you, if Democrats win and Kamala Harris is our next vice president, we will have an open Senate seat here in California. Governor Gavin Newsom will get to choose her replacement. Who? What should he be looking at for a replacement? Maybe someone like you, perhaps? <laughs> yeah, I'm focused very <laughs> clearly on November 3rd, and we've got to win this election. We've got to make sure that Senator Harris is our vice president and that Joe Biden is our president. 
that's my response to that. <laughs> Shortest everyone. answer we've Boy, gotten we, all day. Yeah, exactly. Boy, well, we made you laugh anyway. That's interesting. <laughs> what, but seriously, what kind of person do you think? Like, not not who, but what kind? That, that's up for the governor. I, you know, the governor's very smart. He's strategic. He knows what the state needs uh, in the Senate, and uh, he will make his decision based on his criteria and based on what um, he thinks the state uh, needs and how effective someone would be on behalf of the state in the state Senate. So he's going to make that decision. Hmm. So just a couple of minutes left, Congresswoman. Tell us tonight, we're a few hours away from the final presidential debate. What does a win look like for Joe Biden? Well, you know, almost what I said about uh, Senator Harris uh, and her debate is uh, being himself. He's very authentic. He connects with people. And I think speaking directly to the American people about uh, first he feels their pain and he knows what they're going through, but also what he's going to do to uh, one crush this uh, pandemic, as Speaker Pelosi says, because, you know, too many people have died due to the lack of leadership. Too many people are. Today, I saw something that said, what, 1,100 deaths, uh, the highest death rate uh, as it relates to COVID uh, since the pandemic began. I mean, this is serious. And so I hope he talks about his commitment to take to take leadership in helping to address the COVID pandemic in a way that we have not seen yet. Secondly, um, I hope he talks about the economic impact of not only what has happened, but what he will do to, to bring people back to work, to help our small businesses, to move the economy forward because this, and he understands this is a health and economic crisis. I was in Congress when he was uh, vice president and I saw how he pushed that uh, recovery bill forward to make sure that uh, this country did not fall into a deep depression. So All right, we're going to have to leave it there. <laughs> we're going to have to leave okay. it there. We're going to be watching along with you. Congresswoman Barbara Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thanks a million. All, All right. right. That's it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tovin Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Erica Aguilar, and Jonathan Blakely. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at M Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.